I really wish I had a magic blanket that I could throw over this situation, but I don't. Stigma haunts Alzheimer's disease like ghosts in Halloween. It's the disease that people fear most. There is actually something going on in their brain that's preventing them from doing it because their initiative has been robbed of them. Over the last 100 years, the life expectancy of humans has more than doubled. Today, the global average life expectancy is over 70 years old. Living longer than the generations before us is a testament to recent medical advances and an understanding of healthy lifestyles that keep our bodies agile and our minds sharp. But the older we get, the greater the risk of developing dementia and the diseases that cause it, like Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease affects one in every nine people about age 65. And after that, the risk doubles every five years. In adults over 85, a staggering 33% of people have Alzheimer's. And even if you manage to dodge the disease, you will probably have a friend or family member affected by it. Alzheimer's was first discovered and named over 100 years ago, and we still don't fully understand what causes it or how to treat it. Today, we're going on a journey exploring the past, present, and future of Alzheimer's from a 360-degree perspective. We're talking to clinicians, advocates, and caregivers. We will talk about how these devastating disease affects patients and caregivers. We will discuss biomarkers and how they inform treatments and the best ways to manage your brain's health right now. Welcome to Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. I'm your co-host, Leila Siraj. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi. And this is 360 Perspectives, Alzheimer's Disease. Hi listeners, if you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping rate show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. We could spend days talking about Alzheimer's disease, especially as this is my field of study. We decided to bring one of our writers, Lauren, on today's episode to help keep us on track. Thanks, Maddie. I'm happy to be here. I learned so much listening to these interviews, and there's a lot we have to cover, so I think we should just dig right in. When my mother was at home, and she really shouldn't have been um, at that point, but it was really hard letting her go and putting her in a nursing home, she ended up in the hospital um, because she fell. And the doctor walked in, and he took one look at her, and he goes, she doesn't have Alzheimer's, she's too young. I think we all have some idea of what living with Alzheimer's might be like. The clip you just heard was from Dr. Stephanie Kalb, who studied Alzheimer's for her PhD, and she currently works as a medical director. She had firsthand experience seeing Alzheimer's play out with both her grandmother and her mother, and she took on a major role as a caregiver for her mom. Here she is talking more about her experience. My mom started off with very classic symptoms. So, you know, the memory loss, the repeating of stories, and that was the big trigger for us is that you know, I was very very close with her. I, I called her my best friend in college. We talked like every other day, every day. 
And then she, I could just tell like the conversations just kept getting repeated and repeated. And she, she didn't, um, I knew, I mean, immediately I knew something was going on. First time I thought it was weird. Second time I was like, something's definitely going on. Over time, I think maybe because she had just gone through it with her mother and was very close to it. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm making an assumption. Um, she, her, her symptoms manifested in a lot of um, psychological issues. So she, she had a lot of paranoia. She, she was seeing things a lot. Um, so it was a little different. I, well, they always say when you see one case of Alzheimer's, you've seen one case of Alzheimer's. And hers, hers was a bit different than a classic journey. It was very difficult to watch. I mean, towards the end, she was always asking for her father, um, who had died, you know, a few years prior. At the beginning, yes, it was a lot of the uh, repeating of stories that really triggered us um, bringing her to the doctor. But because she was so young and it was, you know, the early 2000s, mid-2000s, there wasn't good, you know, it was before PET was, you know, before any type of biomarker. And when you're so young, I mean, there was a hesitancy around actually diagnosing. It can sometimes be difficult to separate the symptoms of Alzheimer's from normal signs of aging. If an older family member starts to show any of those symptoms, they could easily be brushed aside and not taken seriously. Dr. Jason Karlowish talks more about this in his writings about Alzheimer's. Dr. Karlowish is a physician and professor of medicine and medical ethics and health policy, as well as neurology, at the University of Pennsylvania. There is so much I didn't know about the historical perspective, especially how our attitude towards a whole group of people shifts when we can finally put a name to the behavior we see. The history does begin in a very particular time and place, namely Germany. Uh, in the Germany before well, the Weimar Republic, namely the Kaiser's Germany, when a very distinct group of German neuropathologists and psychiatrists, they were sort of an amalgam of those two fields in one, uh, got to work using very advanced techniques of the time to look at the brains of uh, their patients, obviously after the patients died. And these physicians, they were all men, uh, they were um, German uh, and or German nationals, and they began to advance the argument that diseases of the brain were caused by pathologies um, that you could see and identify. And they became very interested in the older adults who had what was at the time called senile dementia or dementia senilis, uh, which was viewed as just the extreme stage of aging. And they began to say, no, there's something going on here that might not just be aging. And without going into the details of what they were finding, they were saying some very revolutionary things, namely that extreme aging is not why older adults become forgetful, agitated, unable to live uh, independently in the community and need an asylum, but there might be a disease going on. Um, and this was very revolutionary work. 1914 hit, and 1914, uh, of course, the world went to war. As is often the case when humans go to war, they think it'll be a short event, it'll be over soon. That wasn't the case. Four years later, Germany finally surrenders, uh, it's wrecked, and those decades that follow are a tragic story. And in those decades to follow, the 20s, the 30s, the progress in science just simply ground to a halt in Germany. And then it would pick up again in the late 1970s in America, largely, though not exclusively, when another set of events occurred. And in brief, those events were cultural. 
namely there were real shifts occurring in the culture in uh, mostly liberal democracies such that with aging the idea that you just lose your ability to be yourself to be autonomous was increasingly culturally unacceptable it followed other trends such as because your gender is a woman or your race is not caucasian etc that you couldn't do certain things it was just unacceptable by the end of the 20th century and so one of the cultural transformations that transformed senility into a disease was the rise of the principle of respect for autonomy, namely that losing your ability to self-determine your life was unacceptable. It helped then that medicine was ready to say, well, you know what? The reason why as you age, you lose your ability to self-determine your life probably isn't aging, namely just what happens independent of disease, whatever that is, but it's a disease and it's this disease called Alzheimer's. If you're enjoying this episode, join the conversation with us on Twitter at Science Rehashed, where we will be rehashing this episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Science Rehashed to stay in the loop about our new episodes and upcoming interviews. Dr. Karlowish talked about how scientists back in the early 1900s saw different pathologies in the brain, and that's how we know this is a disease. So what exactly do we see in the brain of a person with Alzheimer's? That's a great question, Lauren. We interviewed Dr. Stephen Salloway, the founding director of the Memory and Aging Program at Butler Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. We know that Alzheimer's is different because of specific biomarkers that have been identified in the brain. Let's hear from Dr. Salloway explaining some of these hallmarks of Alzheimer's. We previously uh, were making the diagnosis of Alzheimer's at a late stage in dementia, often in advanced dementia. And there wasn't really much biomarker testing available to confirm the diagnosis or to make an early diagnosis. So thanks to the contributions of thousands of study participants and very dedicated teams like ours, we now have uh, much better diagnostic tools for diagnosing Alzheimer's accurately and early, and the beginning of treatments that may modify the disease course. So my goal has always been to bring Alzheimer's on par with other major diseases to open the modern era for the diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's based on uh, molecular markers uh, with specific treatments to slow down the disease. Dr. Alzheimer in 1906 presented the first case and he reported the amyloid plaques, which were already known, which are in between the nerve cells. And he also described the intraneuronal neurofibrillary tangles. Now at that time, we didn't know they were made, plaques were made of amyloid primarily and the tangles were made of tau protein, but these were the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's, and they have really remained the key proteinopathies, the key proteins that build up. Uh, amyloid plaques build up early over a period of years, probably 10 to 20 years before the memory loss sets in. This causes a more toxic environment, uh, especially the smaller forms of amyloid, the oligomers, and which causes the tau tangles to hyper to hyper, tau to hyperphosphorylate and form tangles. 
Uh, and then as the tangles progress, there tends to be a breakdown of nerve cells, neuron. It's really, that's the neurodegeneration of Alzheimer's, uh, the loss of synapses, and then the clinical syndrome that goes with that, the, you know, cognitive and clinical decline. Um, so plaques build up early, tangles follow, and then cognitive impairment and other clinical symptoms develop after that. So it makes sense to target plaque buildup early to try to slow down this whole pathological process. There are certainly many other components to Alzheimer's disease. I mean, aging is the foundation and the major risk factor for Alzheimer's. So neuronal aging is understanding that is critical. As you build up these proteins, you get inflammatory changes to try to clear the debris that can also be toxic. And so targeting inflammation would make sense. It's not easy to do, but it's important. Looking at what happens to protein trafficking and mitochondrial health is very important. Intercellular processing of proteins, vascular changes. I mean, there's so many components. There's always the concern and the argument, oh, you know, some people have plaques and don't get Alzheimer's. And that is true. But People with Alzheimer's disease, who, who have clinical Alzheimer's disease, almost always have extensive plaque buildup and it occurs early. Knowing more about the biomarkers and how they progress give us some direction when developing drugs that could potentially treat Alzheimer's. There is a lot of research going on to try to identify effective treatments that target pathologies in the brain, but this is not easy by any means. We heard more about the current state of Alzheimer's treatments from Dr. Gad Marshall, the Director of Clinical Trials at the Center for Alzheimer's Research and Treatment at Brigham and Women's in Boston. We asked him about the main targets for treatments in the clinical trials going on today, including the recently FDA-approved anti-amyloid drug aducanumab. For many, many years now, we've focused on uh, amyloid-modifying drugs as the potential you know, treatment or prevention for Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of data showing that amyloid uh, is, you know, part of the disease in terms of a marker of disease uh, and what we look at in autopsy and uh, a positive phase three clinical trial, which suggests that it's actually a causative agent, which has been our biggest challenge in, in years. Um, so now for, you know, over, over a decade, you know, probably about 15 years uh, yeah, more than that. Immunotherapy against amyloid has been a big target, starting with an active vaccine against amyloid and then shifting to uh, passive immunization with monoclonal antibodies. Primarily this past June uh, 2021, uh, the FDA had accelerated approval of one of such uh, antibodies, aducanumab or aduhelm for the brand name, despite very underwhelming data from two large phase three trials. So aducanumab and a few other antibodies against amyloid have shown very clear removal of amyloid from the brain, uh, primarily on, with PET imaging, and uh, so showing you know, target engagement quite clearly, including in these two phase three trials at their low and high doses of, of this drug. What was really problematic with, <laughs> with uh, these phase three trials is that the primary outcome was not uh, you know, a removal of amyloid. There was clinical outcome, as you would expect in a phase three trial. And about 1,500 participants per trial with you know three arms of placebo, low dose and high dose. And one of the trials showed a very modest clinical benefit uh, with the high dose, um, statistically significant, but 
uh, many would argue, including myself, not clinically meaningful. And then the other one showed no benefit whatsoever with, with that high dose, and neither showed benefit with the low dose. Uh, that was the, you know, the primary outcome was the clinical outcome. There are several secondary outcomes that were clinical. And, and then there was you know, lower down a secondary outcome that was the amyloid removal. This was in individuals with mild cognitive impairment or very mild dementia with known elevated amyloid in their brain as an inclusion criterion. Um, and so, you know, mostly what we'd call prodromal Alzheimer's disease. And the FDA approved uh, the use of the drug based on the biomarker outcome. Finding an effective treatment for Alzheimer's is clearly more complicated than simply clearing out amyloids in the brain. We, we do see that you can have tau without amyloid in the brain up to mild cognitive impairment. It's not that unusual, but beyond that, it becomes pretty unusual if it's really uh, an Alzheimer's trajectory. And so a lot of people do think that you need to have a combination treatment. Um, of course, uh, combination treatments are not foreign to medicine. And you know that's something we do a lot with other conditions like cancer, infectious disease. And if we look at autopsy data, there are probably five pathologies that account for about 90% of most of old age cognitive decline, and, and those would be amyloid, tau, uh, TDP43, which uh, we thought up until more recently was mostly associated with rare frontotemporal dementia or uh, semantic dementia, but rather, but it is in fact quite common with amnestic presentations. Uh, they may be more hippocampal sclerosis, but uh, uh, again, uh, that is a pretty common late-life pathology. And then alpha-synuclein, that relates to Parkinsonian uh, conditions, uh, not just Parkinson's disease, but the Parkinsonian dementias, and then vascular disease. And so when we target one of five common pathologies, that may be a problem. A lot of neuroscientists and a lot of Alzheimer's disease researchers believe this is the secondary pathology as after the amyloid plaques, the tau tangles happens. Can you comment about how you think and how you envision an anti-tau drug where you can also inhibit these, these crosstalk as an amyloid plaques and tau tangles, and this is happening as a secondary pathology? If we don't treat the amyloid pathology, do you believe treating the tau tangles would improve cognitive decline? Uh, there is you know, some benign tau in the brain very, very early on, but then once it reaches the enterorhinal cortex and goes to inferior temporal and beyond, uh, it, it is no longer benign. And uh, before that state, before that change, uh, amyloid uh, accumulates in the brain. I mean, amyloid has had a lot of press and a lot of obviously research going into it. A lot of amyloid uh, animal models have helped move that along. We, we know at least you know, from autopsy, uh, you know, for Alzheimer's, uh, tau pathology is, is, you know, another hallmark that's very important. And we know that phosphorylated tau in particular is more specific to Alzheimer's and, and relates directly to neurodegeneration and uh, the neurofibrillary tangles that are, in fact, shriveled neurons in the brain. And so relates more to clinical symptoms. And that's been a much harder target uh, to engage in. Uh, but in recent years, there's been more work in this in terms of clinical trials. And we've, in the past few years, seen uh, the first set of phase two trials with monoclonal antibodies against tau, trying to, at least theoretically, reduce uh, transsynaptic propagation of phospho-tau. Uh, we don't want to get into the neurons and <laughs> damage uh, or remove tau because uh, it directly uh, links to you know, various uh, transport of nutrients down the axon and all sorts of 
things that are critical. And so uh, I would just say, I mean, that unfortunately, the first three uh, trials that folks with mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia uh, with these tau antibodies did not show a benefit clinically or, you know, in terms of the biomarker outcomes. One trial that was in mild to approaching moderate dementia showed a modest cognitive benefit, but no daily functioning benefit. So kind of puts us in between uh, in terms of what it could do. And so, you know, we're all excited about seeing this first um, uh, slew of uh, trials with these type of agents. We're, you know, we don't know what to do with these results yet, but uh, we're hoping that there'll be a next generation that will engage the target better. I think there's a ton of strong evidence from the lab setting for inflammation oxidation, uh, really inflammation in terms of how it it could relate to neurodegeneration. There's been controversial, but probably less so now, uh, talk about infectious disease, you know, uh, relating to that. Again, uh, I think that a common denominator of things that kind of activate uh, inflammation in the brain that could lead to neurodegeneration. Sadly, we've mostly uh, looked at nonspecific repurposed drugs and trials to tackle that question. And so uh, we've used very blunt instruments that are very hard to know what they would do. And so I, I think that in practice, it's been very hard to get to that next step in a clinical trial where we can show that targeting inflammation is going to help uh, treat or prevent cognitive decline. I think it is an important direction. I just I don't know how we're going to get to to the answer there. I mean, I think that, um, you know, is it going to help all neurodegenerative diseases? I mean, you know, do you have something that takes care of everything? I mean, theoretically, the answer is yes. I mean, in a lab setting, you say yes. But I think that because it's such a broad direction, I think that's been a hard one to really nail down. The simplest concept that we thought that the brain is an immune privileged site and, and it's, it's very well sealed over the last at least five years. We know a lot about this. And this, we can rewrite the textbooks right now with, from the lymphatic system and then the, the meningeal lymphatics these days. We know the peripheral immune system is involved at early stage of inflammation. There is an infiltration of the immune cells. There are a lot of great understanding of the resident immune cells of the brain and the microglia clearance of the amyloid. So I think it's a big topic that might be applied to a lot of neurodegenerative diseases in the future. And if not, at least we can leverage and harness these understanding for early diagnosis of dementia. I think we should circle back to that Educatumab conversation since there is still a lot that needs to be unpacked there. Totally agreed. Like we just heard a little while ago, on June 7th of 2021, aducanumab was approved by the FDA under the Accelerated Approval Pathway. This allows drugs for life-threatening illnesses to get approved more quickly based on a surrogate endpoint. In this case, the surrogate endpoint was reduction of amyloid beta in the brain. Let's listen to the conversations we had with Dr. Soloway and Dr. Karlowish about the Aducam decision. Dr. Salloway, we know the biggest criticism of the aducanumab approval is the difference between the surrogate outcome and clinical outcomes. Can you tell us about how aducanumab works and what those endpoints are? I don't think it's controversial that this drug and this class of drugs, these are monoclonal antibodies that get into the brain at low concentrations. They bind to the plaques. 
and they stimulate microglial cells to break up the plaque and they lower plaque on a PET scan. I think that's broadly accepted that these drugs are good at lowering amyloid plaque. I think the question is, what's the benefit? What's the clinical benefit if you do that? And in what patient population is most likely to achieve that benefit? In one of the studies, there was a slowing down in the eMERGE study for the aducanumab. There was a slowing down of cognitive decline on the primary outcome measure and on the secondary outcome measures. It was modest, but it was significant. And in the other study, it didn't meet those primary outcomes. So that's where the uncertainty comes from. So it's controversial. I mean, it's very straightforward. Unfortunately, Biogen made the decision to perform a futility analysis with one year left in the trial. Everyone had been enrolled, over 3,000 patients, no new safety signals. We were on track to complete the trial. And their initial review, when 50% had received the high dose, showed that they were unlikely to meet, when they combined both studies, unlikely to meet the clinical outcomes, and they stopped the trial abruptly, which was very jarring for everyone. Uh, then they analyzed all the data, the remaining patients who had received treatment, and they found that one trial had met the primary outcome, clinical outcomes, and the other did not. So that leads to the discordance there. And they went to FDA for approval the FDA clinical team, it was in favor of approval. The advisory panel that reviewed the data, they didn't feel the data was sufficient to warrant approval at this time. They thought more study was needed. Put FDA in a quandary what to do. I think FDA took a really forward-thinking position here where they, we haven't had a new drug for Alzheimer's for 18 years. Uh, these patients face, it's a terminal disease. It's uh, progressive, it's relentless in almost all cases and disabling. And there is evidence from this class of medicine now with three drugs, aducanumab, lucanumab, and denanumab, that there is some evidence of clinical benefit. And so they weighed out all the options. They wanted to make this treatment available uh, to patients while further study was done. And so they granted accelerated approval for aducanumab, but required additional study. And they also gave the green light for review for approval to the other two drugs that I mentioned. You know, I think the FDA really is trying to, whether you agree with them or not, they are trying to move the field forward. And also the other thing you have to think about is not just this one drug, but it's stimulating innovation. You know, companies need to have some incentive to keep going and putting, you know, their, their resources and their creativity behind this. And so I think it's our responsibility as a field across the board to build on this. This is just the beginning and to come up with combination treatments, other targets, better treatments. Dr. Kalawish, you have been very outspoken about your position on the FDA approval of Adjokamp, and you are not the only clinician or scientist who disagreed with this decision. And now it's approved and patients have these uh, choice in front of them. How do you present the risk and benefits to patients who could potentially be the candidate for this uh, drug? Well, aducanumab presents a very unusual clinical decision for my patients and their family members. Namely, 
I have a drug that has not been shown to be safe and effective. It has documented risks, but the claim that it's effective is uncertain. It's the kind of drug that I would normally say should be available in a clinical trial that assesses whether it's effective in the setting of a trial where obviously we're, each patient is being carefully monitored and benefits are being measured in a way that at the end of the trial, I can say that this drug did or didn't work and perhaps even be able to say to you, the patient, it benefited you or it didn't benefit you. So the choice is a very kind of um, epistemologically challenging choice for a patient and family. Namely, do you not just accept the risk and benefit, but the uncertainty of the benefit with those known risks? So, you know, people can work through that decision. You know, it's just a more complicated decision to work through. Um, but it's a very unusual decision for the clinical encounter because it's not usual in clinical practice that we present people a treatment, and I put it in quotes, that's like that. Um, and so in that sense, I mean, I do agree with FDA on one thing. The drug needs more study. I mean, FDA's approval requires Biogen to do a validation study to prove that the drug, in fact, is effective. It's just a question of when that study should be done in the same time that the drug is available clinically. So I suppose I agree with the Center for Medicare Services which also wants a confirmatory study to be done. But the difference there is, of course, that's the only way that they'll cover the drug is if you're in that study, assuming that they decide to stick with that decision. This conversation about the accelerated approval is only just beginning, and I'm sure we'll all be keeping an eye out for the next milestones in the clinical trials. We can all agree that the new treatment will be life-changing for patients and their caregivers getting to a point where patients can get the best possible treatment early enough to make a difference will be a real game changer in the field. Alzheimer's disease has a huge impact on families, especially caregivers. Being a caregiver requires financial and emotional sacrifices, and every family has their own unique experiences when someone is suffering from Alzheimer's. I know that a lot of people go through the same thing where I was in a very busy lab. I had a very active social life. I did kickball and you know, I was always out and you know, worked hard, played hard during the week and still so incredibly lonely. Like I felt like I was the only one going through this. I had an interesting conversation with one of my mother's cousins who had called me and said, you know, I, and this is when she, my mother was getting pretty bad and, and being at home was getting more and more difficult. And she said, I really think you need to take a break from school and your research and you need to come home and watch her full time. And I, I was just devastated. I, I just, I was working so hard to help on weekends and I felt like it was a very selfish image thing, but I felt like nobody was appreciating that, that I wasn't doing enough. And I was so angry and also guilty that I called up the memory clinic, the social worker there, and she was like, I always tell younger children, not younger, but children of the Alzheimer's patient, don't give up your lives for this. You know, you, you do not need to give up your lives for this. And so she's like, I would like to invite you to a caregiver support group. And that is when we met once a month. I was the youngest person there by far. I was in my 20s. But I, I, got, I really um, 
gained some great friendships from that group. And, and it was just so comforting. For some families, the role of caregiver is an expectation. It's ingrained into the family structure that younger family members will take care of their parents and grandparents when the time comes. It becomes so normalized that it can actually present an obstacle to getting people proper medical care if they need it. Attitudes about the roles of family in caring for each other are magnified, exemplified, revealed through a disease like Alzheimer's or other diseases that cause dementia. And if you are of a culture where, for example, based on gender and relationship and birth order, you're assigned the role of caregiver, a lot of the problem of Alzheimer's is, I don't want to say solved, but it's addressed. Namely, well, there's always going to be that second or third daughter to take care of things because she'll always be around. And if that's what her choice is, you know, fine. The challenge, of course, is the degree to which she wants to embrace that ethic or not. When there is a well-culturally reified idea of caregiving in a family, while it does address the sort of labor issue because we're going to support this person who's going to provide the care, the family will. So don't worry, you're not working, paying into the labor force, getting Social Security, but the rest of the family is going to make sure you're covered. I mean, you could say that, you know, okay, that works for that family. I'm not condemning or praising that. I'm saying that's working. Okay. The, the one issue I've often noticed, though, when I take, find those families is it's so normalized that oftentimes the problem, seeing it as a disease where you need education, training, and support is not actually embraced. And so oftentimes they bring in patients who are very far advanced and they've just sort of been caring because, well, that's just what we do and it worked and there was no problem. They only bring them in when like, you know, there's agitation or functional needs that can no longer be met, et cetera. And so, because if you normalize something, you know, you just sort of accommodate to it until finally you can't put up with it anymore. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just an observation I make that oftentimes folks who have really created a normalization of family will step in and care. This is just what we do. They don't seek out the medical system to help because they don't need the medical system to help. This ties nicely into our conversation with Dr. Carl Hill, the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the Alzheimer's Association. I think we've got to spend, you know, a lot of time thinking about the sociocultural level of analysis and how it relates to caregivers' perception of their role. Right. And how that links again to you know resources to do that role in a very efficient way. Right. And so, you know, much of this is an empirical question, you know, supporting research uh, that gives us more information about, you know, how caregivers perceive this role, caregivers who are Hispanic, Latino or African-American. And these aren't monolithic groups, you know, within the uh, Hispanic, Latino population in the United States, there are specific ethnic groups that could view this differently. The words we use to describe Alzheimer's or any disease are so powerful. They contribute to the stigma of a diagnosis that can be very damaging to patients, as well as how others perceive them and their caregivers. Stigma haunts Alzheimer's disease like ghosts in Halloween, you know, and there's several forms of stigma. One is self-stigma, namely the individual with the label Alzheimer's feels less about themselves and their abilities and skills and are concerned that if others know about this label, they'll treat them differently and or they just already they think less of themselves already. So that's self-stigma. Public stigma is when other people who learn about the label treat you differently. 
avoid you or think ill of you or take away things from you or deny you of things you, you would like or want. And then there's spillover stigma, namely the people around you start to be affected by your stigma, namely the caregivers will often describe how people avoid them as well, of friends and family. So those are the stigmas of the disease. You know, and stigma is a many hydra-headed thing, meaning it has lots of sort of origins, if you will. Uh, certainly one of them is in language, it's the words we use. And those words are words used by culture, but also by the medical profession. So, you know, there are these ideas out there of, well, it's a disease that causes you to die twice, first in mind and then in body, implying therefore that people with Alzheimer's in some sense are zombies at some point, because if you die first in mind, but not in body, you're, you're for some period of time, you're part of the zombie trope. The one term I think that haunts the medical field that we were sort of having a conversation about is the term dementia. I think that I can speak personally, you know, in my own practice lifetime years ago, I would talk about people being demented. I would say demented with the same ease as which I say Alzheimer's or hypertension. Um, I would say, oh, he's demented, et cetera. That now is just not language that I would use. I would say he's a person living with dementia. He has dementia. And I think the field largely has actually embraced that. I think when I go to meetings, my colleagues don't talk about the demented or when they're demented. They generally say, well, in persons with dementia, et cetera. And what you're trying to do is remove the adjectival label that you become the thing. If you say someone's demented, they are only dementia. And there's nothing else about them. You know, like, be like, yeah, like I am diabetes. <laughs> no, I'm a person with diabetes. I don't have diabetes, but I'm just trying to pick a disease that, you know, doesn't seem to have the same stigma that, that Alzheimer's does in dementia. I think, though, there are some who argue even the dementia term doesn't work. And I can see a logic to that. I, I think the value of the dementia term is it captures disability. But I think we could arrive at different language that just simply said, well, they have disability and, and leave it at that. I do think we're in a conversation now as a field about what is the place of the term dementia to help move along diagnosis, treatment, uh, well-being for our patients and their family members. All of our guests agreed that patients are essential to moving the field forward. Building relationships with patients, ensuring that everybody can have access to resources and care, and making healthcare more equitable is a huge priority right now. The key to our success is the partnership with the patients that they felt really cared for in our program. Our staff is just very caring and dedicated. And all through COVID, we stayed open and Patients kept coming and the staff kept coming and people were willing to go above and beyond, I think, because of the support they received. Uh, and we sort of each motivated the other. So that's really been the key to our success. We rarely have a dropout from a study. People just really hang in there over years. And some of these studies go on for years. The same challenge is coming up now for diversity recruitment because it tends to be highly educated people, Caucasian of Caucasian background that volunteer for these studies. And we really need a much broader participation. And so that's going to require building different types of trust with a wider community. So that's the challenge the whole field faces right now. And it was brought up by the CMS in their proposed coverage for Aduhelm that there be broader diversity in, among patients that are treated in the future. And so that's an, a real challenge for our field. Dr. Hill told us about some of the work they are doing to bridge this gap in the healthcare setting and his hopes for a future of increased diversity in dementia care. 
we certainly have, you know, more opportunity to be uh, even more inclusive of all communities, all populations in research. It really is, I think, one of the priority areas for our work and engagement. And that links, you know, very specifically to research. When we look to characterize risk, you know, diverse perspectives are just so uh, very important. You know, finding ways to really understand, you know, barriers to uh, participation in clinical research is really important. And the Alzheimer's Association, you know, conducted a study just last year, um, race, ethnicity and Alzheimer's. It was a part of our annual facts and figures report. And we found that many of non-white racial ethnic populations perceived that they would be treated unfairly because of their race or ethnicity in the dementia care system. And uh, many of them also reported that they had experienced racial uh, discrimination in the healthcare system, right? So we have to do more to ensure that there are standards around uh, cultural competence in healthcare settings. We have to also think critically about uh, representation within the healthcare system, right? So by 2050, nearly 40% of the older population will be non-white Americans, right? Really, really, really interesting to think about it in that way. So we need to increase our efforts to ensure that the next generation of healthcare providers and workers reflect these uh, changing demographics. But how can we make sure that happens? And how can we better engage with the community, especially when it is so important for underrepresented populations to be included in clinical trials? You know, the Association of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Division, we're partnering uh, with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. They advocate uh, for many of the historically Black colleges and universities, and we've work with them to develop an internship program where undergraduate students are able to work with, you know, one of our chapters around the country to get a sense of, you know, one, the work that we do with the association, the need for, you know, more engagement with communities. They're certainly uh, champions in that regard with hope that, you know, they'll come back to us once uh, they finish their undergraduate degree or they may go on to medical school, but that they would have been introduced to the need uh, for, you know, better uh, representation in dementia care. Now, the Alzheimer's Association drafted and we're advocating for the ENACT Act, uh, and that's going to, if passed by Congress, is going to really give uh, these Alzheimer's uh, disease research centers. And, and the ENACT Act stands for Equity in Neuroscience and Alzheimer's Clinical Trials Act, right? And so it would increase the participation of uh, underrepresented populations in Alzheimer's and other dementia clinical trials by expanding education and outreach to these disproportionately affected and underserved populations. It would encourage uh, better representation among clinical trial. And then it would also provide resources uh, to these Alzheimer's disease research centers to evaluate you know, the factors uh, that link to participation burden, right? And this is what's really exciting for me because it will give resources to uh, researchers to evaluate whether something like, you know, memories of the Tuskegee syphilis trial and whether in in an African-American community in Philadelphia, if that is, you know, one of the important barriers to participation. It may or may not be, you know, one barrier could be transportation, or, you know, the time of day uh, that researchers are asking participants to come and participate in a clinical trial, right? So really evaluating those accelerators and barriers and informing the clinical trial research community so that we can get more representation in the trials. 
amyloid plaques start accumulating in the brain decades before people are diagnosed with dementia. And it has been very difficult for clinical trials to find success, likely because they start too late in the course of the disease to make a meaningful difference. For this reason, being able to identify Alzheimer's early with distinct biomarkers will be useful for figuring out if a person is at risk. There are some genetic factors that increase a person's risk, but even some people who have the genetic variants, one or two copies of the APOE4 allele, for example, still never show signs of the disease. So what determines your trajectory, whether you have those genetic variants or not? Our brains interact with the environment around us, and researchers have found that lifestyle factors can play a huge role in how and when Alzheimer's manifests. Alzheimer's disease will require a combination of treatments. I don't think there'll be one drug for Alzheimer's. I think it's very important, like we do with cancer, to have molecular profiling where we know what the amyloid status, the tau status, if we had good markers of inflammation. There are other components of neurodegeneration. There are uh, buildup of uh, alpha-synuclein into Lewy bodies. There's TDP-43, other toxic proteins that build up in neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's. So the more markers we have, Understanding the vascular dimension, the vascular component of Alzheimer's is really important. So each person is going to be a little different, and we're going to target our treatments, hopefully, based on their molecular profile for the most effective outcome. And I don't think we're going to have one single treatment that will be effective preventing or curing Alzheimer's. I think lifestyle is extremely important. So there are things we all can do to promote brain health with exercise, a healthy diet, Mediterranean-type diet, good heart health, brain stimulation, and socialization. And we're part of the U.S. Pointer Trial, which is testing this type of lifestyle, multimodal lifestyle intervention, and people at risk for Alzheimer's 60 to 79 to enhance memory. So we'll see how that turns out. We're pretty far along in recruitment now for that study. But I think we all need to do that. That will be a foundation for brain health with aging. But then some people just have a higher risk for Alzheimer's. They're going to be on a pathway mostly due to genetics to uh, develop Alzheimer's. And, And even good lifestyle practices won't prevent Alzheimer's for them. And so they're going to need people at higher risk are going to need treatment started early to modify that course and and prevent the disability. Two things I want to touch base on what you, you mentioned. One is the lifestyle. And I had the pleasure to be working with uh, Dr. Rudy Tenzi, and I'm sure you know him. And he has this shield, which is sleep, handle stress, interact with others, exercise, learn new things, and diet. And he highly believes these six factors going to impact the disease progressions in the future. So sleep, sleep, what's the next one? Sleep, handle stress. Oh, yeah interact with others, exercise, learn new things, and diet, and he call a shield. Okay, that's good. The only thing that's missing from there is the heart health. Absolutely. Because uh, you really got to control, you got to control the, the risk factors for heart disease, which also affects brain health. I agree with him. This was the same advice we got across the board from all our guests. 
various lifestyle modifications can be helpful, especially in prevention, aerobic exercise, a Mediterranean style diet, and then uh, treating a variety of cardiovascular risk factors aggressively. You know, research is telling us more and more what's good for the heart is good for the brain, you know, so really uh, protecting cardiovascular health. To me, there's two ways of thinking about it, right? There's like the pie in the sky, like what would we ultimately hope for the big future? And then there's also what's the biggest change that I want to advocate for right now? What do you think that would be in terms of changes you want to see most immediately? Most immediately, you know, I'd hope to see sort of a shift in the conversation around Alzheimer's as to what we can do to prevent it. I actually forgot to mention this, but it was a big part of my life for a couple of years. After I ran the Boston Marathon, I wanted to pay it forward because um, I got so many donations from friends and family. And that was another thing that participating in this, you know, for years I had felt so alone in this. I decided to pay it forward after the Boston Marathon and I, I started getting involved in advocacy. And if this is something, if, if you have an interest in Alzheimer's as a public health issue, I, I would recommend highly. Essentially, there's a there's a public policy director at the Alzheimer's Association, and um, you become an advocate, but you really work together as a group. And I would go to these forums. I did I did it a couple of years in a row, where I'd go to these forums down in D.C. and you really learn about the issues. It's the Alzheimer's Impact Movement, and learning what they do in terms of legislation they try to pass and they really get their advocates on board and they train them up. And then, you know, as an advocate, you would go and talk to your um, local legislatures and just really tell your story, say why it, why it matters, um, and then say, you know, what a difference, you know, this bill will make if passed, et cetera. So for anyone that's, that, that wants to know about the current issues in Alzheimer's, public health-wise and you know, I would recommend looking into that, you know, getting involved, like talking to your representatives, talking to your Senate members, you know, like let them know that you're passionate about this. My goal, like my near term goal, if more people would be involved in that, like we could really make a difference. Thank you so much. Again, I cannot appreciate you more than I can say about sharing your story and your mom. And we are so sorry to hear this, but we need people like you. To, to advocate for these devastating diseases. We'd like to thank all of our guests, Drs. Stephanie Kalb, Gad Marshall, Stephen Salloway, Jason Karlowish, and Carl Hill for sharing their insights and giving us a true 360 perspective on Alzheimer's disease. Our ambassador spotlight for this episode is Shreya Mittal a postdoctoral researcher who is passionate about science outreach, especially raising awareness about STEM careers and life as a scientist. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Lauren Granata, edited and mixed by Aaron Troutman, and the cover art was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. <laughs>